Well, since last October, we've been reciting these creeds together as part of our liturgy, as part of our worship. And as we've gone through this series, our prayer, and this has been happening for us as, as we study and as I hear uh, my brothers preach, each phrase that we've gone through now as we say it every Sunday together kind of has more meaning and I've got a bigger picture of what exactly we're confessing together. And my prayer is that's true for you as well. But probably some of the, the phrases of the creed are, are a little more murky in your mind of, as to what they mean than others. Um, and the phrase that we're looking at this morning, for me personally, I would say out of the creed has probably been the murkiest. He descended to the dead. Or maybe you're familiar with the more traditional translation, he descended into hell. And so that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. What does it mean, or, or what are we confessing when we say that together, that Christ descended to the dead? Why do some people say he descended into hell? Think about it this way. Jesus died on Friday, and he was resurrected on Sunday. So here's the question. Where was he on Saturday? Have you ever thought about that? Where was Jesus in between his death and his resurrection? We know his body was in the grave, but where was his soul? Where was Christ's spirit? Does the Bible even say anything about this? And the answer that we're going to see is yes, it does. And so the answer to that question is what we're going to be looking at. It's kind of an infamous phrase in the Apostles' Creed. There's, there's been a lot of controversy throughout the history of the church, which we don't have time to go into. Um, some, out of confusion, have, have even taken it out of the creed. Some have redefined it. And I would say, in my experience, most of evangelicalism just ignores it. I mean, when was the last time you heard a sermon on Christ's descent into the realm of the dead? I could say never, uh, until right now. Hopefully we'll change that today. But, but so as we were preparing this sermon series, Dustin, Josh, and I were kind of drawing straws for who's going to preach which parts. And, and, you know, in each of our own personalities, we each had certain ones that we wanted to preach. And this was one that I wanted to preach because I wanted to force myself to, to dive deeply into Scripture and figure out what this is all about. I, I had kind of dipped my toe into this a little bit over the years in seminary and things like that, but I wanted to do a deep dive into the Scriptures and figure out this question of, of what does it mean that Christ descended into the dead? Where was Christ's soul between Friday and Sunday? And it has been quite a journey. One author uh, describing this doctrine, he, he describes it as a labyrinth. He says, every question that you try to answer just leads to two more questions. And I feel like my brain has been in this labyrinth all week, and so now I'm just going to pull you in with me. Um, and, and when I initially had started the, the preparation for this, this sermon, I, I thought I could do it in one sermon, but I can't. So, so we're gonna, this is going to be a two-part sermon on Christ's descent to the dead. And I think after we finish today, you'll, you'll understand why uh, we need to kind of do a lot of groundwork to understand what we're even talking about. And my hope for you is that will ex it will explain a lot of things and help you to understand what the Bible teaches about a lot of things, death and the afterlife and things like that. 
And the reason I want to I kind of slow down on this one is because I, I want to show you from the scriptures what they teach. I, I don't want you to take my word for it. I, I could rush through some things and just make statements, but, but I want to take you to the scriptures, straight to the source to see these glorious truths. And so that's what we're going to be doing over the next two Sundays. But two disclaimers, that's four, two disclaimers or two disclaimers. Uh, first, number one, we are going to be looking to the scriptures this morning for the answers to our questions. We're, we're not going to be looking to books that are written by people that have supposedly traveled into heaven or to hell or anywhere in between. I've, I've read some of those. They're, I guess interesting would be a, way, a word for it. Uh, the nicest word I might have for that. Um, regardless of whatever those are, those are not where we get our beliefs about God, about the afterlife, about anything. Um, those are just books. We don't get our theology from those. So we're going to be going to the scriptures. We're not going to be looking to the Roman Catholic Church or the magisterial tradition or the Pope or anything else. They have their own ideas. Those are not authoritative. We will be looking to the scriptures because we here at Del Cerro Baptist Church believe that the Bible is the word of God and therefore is the only infallible rule of faith and practice for us. It is the only source of doctrine, because it is the only source that is divinely inspired and without error. It's the very words of God. And so when attempting to, to look for answers to questions like this, questions about the afterlife, questions about death, it is the only place we can turn for any sure answers. What the Bible says, we will believe, and what it doesn't say, we will left unsaid. You've probably, if you've been a Christian for any time, you've probably found this to be true, but God has not revealed to us in his holy word everything that we may want to know, but he has revealed to us what we need to know and what he wants us to know. And with that, we will be satisfied because God's word is sufficient for us. Amen. So that's disclaimer number one. Disclaimer number two uh, is just this. I, I can't address every question or every implication of this topic, every objection. And so um, while I'll be doing my best, if, if you have more questions or you want to go deeper into this doctrine, this subject, um, I would encourage you in that. Uh, these types of, this kind of unsatisfaction uh, is what drives us to deeper study and deeper prayer. And so this sermon is, is simply the tip of this massive theological and biblical iceberg, so to speak. Uh, and so I have a recommendation. If you, if you want to go deeper into the subject, just go on YouTube and believe whatever they say about it. Um, can't possibly steer you wrong. Uh, just kidding. Um, two books that have been extremely helpful to me, and I put them in the bulletin just so you can take those with you if you want to look them up. Um, one by Samuel Renahan and one by Matthew Emerson on this subject specifically. Um, so I would recommend those highly to you. Um, and this, this sermon is, is indebted to them. Okay, so disclaimers out of the way. So we're going to tackle this difficult, difficult subject. So here's what we're going to do this morning. I'm going to summarize for you what the creed is saying when it says he descended to the dead. And then we're going to, to kind of get to where we want to go next week, we're going to explore this week what the Bible teaches about heaven, death, the afterlife, the underworld, and things like that, and how Christ's descent actually changes these things. Next week, we will dig kind of 
down into some of the New Testament texts that talk about this specifically. So, so that's kind of where we're going. So he descended to the dead. What does the creed mean when it says this? So here's the short version that we'll unpack over the next two weeks. When Jesus Christ died on the cross on Good Friday, his body went into the tomb. That's what we confess. He was crucified, died, and buried. His soul descended into the realm of the dead, called in Scripture Sheol or Hades. You saw that in some of the Scriptures we read. And we're going to talk about this, so if you're like, what in the world? We'll talk about it. In Sheol, in Hades, he liberated the righteous dead. He subdued the demonic powers and proclaimed victory over sin, Satan, death, and Hades. And then, on Sunday, was resurrected. He rose from the dead, from among those who were dead, ascended to the Father in glory, entered the heavenly temple, which we sang in Come Ye Sinners, where he now sits ruling and reigning over all creation, making intercession for us. That is what we confess when we confess he descended to the dead. Now again, you might be thinking, hearing some of these words, what on earth is a Sheol? Um, and isn't Hades that, you know, the guy with the blue hair from Hercules? Um, no. Well, yes, in, a, yes. Uh, in the world of Disney, yes. Um, so, this is the problem. This, this is the problem with even dealing with this doctrine is that, and I'm speaking for myself as well, we do not, we have not done a good job as the church at, at understanding all of what the Bible has to say about these things. And so to even understand what it means when I say that Christ descended into Hades, we have to know what Hades is first. We have to understand what the Bible teaches about the spiritual realms and all these things. And so that's where we're going this morning. You want to be really fancy. This, here's one for your friends. Uh, you can call this biblical cosmology. Or biblical, this one's even cooler because it sounds weirder, biblical cosmography. So when that, whoever, you know, one of your friends asks you what you learned in church today, just be like, biblical cosmography, what'd you learn? That will just really impress them or they'll probably just walk away. Either way, uh, at the most basic level, he, here's, here's what we're looking at Scripture teaches that there are essentially two worlds of existence, okay? There's the visible and the invisible. The human realm, or what we might call the, the physical realm, and the spiritual realm, the invisible. Uh, we, we see this clearly in a verse like Colossians 1.16, for by him all things were created, it's on the screen here, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Pretty basic. There are physical beings, physical matter like us, and there are spiritual beings like God, angels, demons, the souls of the dead, things like that. The triune God is the creator of all things. Colossians is saying every human, every spiritual being. Now, it's important to note here for us in the 21st century, the spiritual and the physical are both equally real. So, so just because something's not physical doesn't make it any less real. Just because an angel is a spiritual being doesn't mean that they're not real. It's important just to just remember as, as we continue. This isn't mythology. This is the revealed word of God. The Bible clearly teaches the reality of spiritual world. Okay, so that's kind of the basic. Now, the Bible teaches there's, there's one physical realm, earth, but there are two spiritual realms. The, the most basic way it, it, these three tiers are referred to in Scripture is this, and this will sound familiar, heaven, earth, 
and under the earth. Many verses use this language. So, for example, Revelation 5.3, And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. Another example of this type of language is Philippians 2.10. So at the name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. In other words, what Paul's saying there, and we'll look at this next week, is in all the realms, every spiritual realm, every physical realm, everyone will bow the knee to King Jesus. Amen. So there's three tiers. That's kind of the visual picture I want you to have. So the first one, the highest realm... And again, these are spiritual things, so when we use physical language, it's kind of metaphorical, but no less real. So heaven uh, is the spiritual realm where God dwells. Now, now obviously, God is omnipresent. He is everywhere at all times, but, but still, the Bible uses spatial language about God, depicts God seated on his throne in heaven. We see this all over the place. I mean, think of the visions in the book of Revelation or Ezekiel. These are visions of heaven, of the heavenly realm, of, of the realm where God dwells. Or, or think of, here's a great example, think of a text like 1 Kings twenty two nineteen, and this is another vision of heaven. I have this on the screen. Micaiah, the prophet, says this, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw, this is a vision, the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. So here, Micaiah sees the heavenly realm, he sees Yahweh, the Lord, sitting on his throne, and on his right and left, his heavenly host, the angels. This is the heavenly realm. Heaven is the dwelling place of God and his angelic host. Now, sometimes the Bible uses the word, the heavens, to just mean the sky or outer space, but context always makes that clear. Heaven is the realm of God's manifest glory. And again, although it's not a physical place, we can contemplate it with the images and depictions that God has revealed to us in Holy Scripture. Hebrews 8.5 even tells us that the, the Israelite tabernacle, the, the reason it was built the way that God had told them to build it was because it was a copy of the heavenly temple. So these, these spiritual realities and, and their physical language have connections, although it's not a one-to-one -one correlation. So that's heaven tier one. That's pretty straightforward. Earth tier two not going to spend much time on that. If you need to know more about that, you probably need to go see someone more professional. Uh, this is just where we are. Uh, the physical world. We get this. Obviously, what we see in Scripture, um, humans, animals, things like this. That's tier two. So heaven, earth. And then we get to this strange thing under the earth. Now, what in the world is that? The, the place, again, I use place with quotes, it's a spiritual realm, of under the earth is the dwelling place of unholy spiritual beings and all humans who have died. Death, we'll look at this a little bit later. Death, in death, the soul is separated from the body. Body remains here on earth. Soul descends to the realm of the dead. At resurrection, these two are reunited. Now, we'll see this a little bit this week and next week as well. In the Old Testament, everyone descended to this realm who died. Christ's descent will affect a permanent change in this realm. That will make sense later. That's just a little treat to kind of foreshadow some things. 
But, but th- this realm is referred to in many different ways and words in scriptures. So Sheol is one. Uh, if you have King James, sometimes that's just tr- translated the grave, so that's why you might not be seeing it. Sheol, in the New Testament, it's translated Hades. Um, Sheol, Hades are, are a Greek and a Hebrew word for the same thing. The abyss, the grave, the pit. It is even referred to at times with this watery imagery, the depths of the sea, the, the deepest of the deeps. You see what this language is. Again, it's physical language to try to draw up pictures in our mind of what the spiritual realm is like. It's a deep, dark place. And in Scripture, it's constantly talked about as being down. Now again, it's called under the earth, but it's not a physical place. So you can't dig down deep enough to find it. But this is just the language that Scripture uses. So it's always down. You always go down to Sheol, down to the grave, down to the abyss. Isaiah 14.9 talks about Sheol being beneath the earth and the heavens. Psalm 115 talks about going down to Sheol. Psalm 63.9 calls Sheol the depths of the earth. Psalm 62.10 calls Sheol the, the lowest parts of the earth, earth or, the, or the, the lowest regions of the earth. Job describes it this way, and here's what we often see in Scripture, this comparison of, of the highest of heights is heaven, then there's earth, and the lowest of lows is Sheol. Look, look at what Job says. Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than the heavens. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth, and broader than the seas. And so you can see those three realms right there. You have heaven, Sheol, and then the earth. Obviously, Job here is saying, you can never comprehend all of God. He's infinite. That's, that's the idea behind Sheol or Hades. Now, the, the second question is this. So who is in this dark place? Who is in this deep place? And what we find out from the Old Testament is The souls of the dead, the souls of the departed are in this place. The Bible teaches that death is the separation of the soul or the spirit from the physical body. Ecclesiastes 8.8 talks about this. No man has the power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. Two ways of talking about the same thing. So when the spirit leaves, that is what death is. In 2 Peter, Peter calls his impending death, he says this, he says, the putting off of my body is soon. In other words, his spirit will depart from his body soon. He will die. James uses the same language. He says the body apart from the spirit is dead. So that's what death is. At death, one does not cease to exist spiritually, but goes somewhere else. At the moment of death, then, and we'll see this in the scriptures. For those who died before Christ's crucifixion, the soul departed from the body and descended to the underworld. Again, in the Old Testament, this place is called Sheol or Hades. It's the common abode of the dead, of all dead. It is where people's souls go when they die. Good and bad, righteous and wicked. Let me show you that from the scriptures. Here. Here's two Old Testament saints, patriarchs and a righteous king, talking about going to Sheol. 
The first is, is Jacob, the patriarch Jacob in Genesis 37, 34. Here's what it says. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son for many days. This is when he thought Joseph was dead. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. In other words, saying, I'm going to mourn until the day that I die. So again, we see this equivocation. To die is to go to Sheol, the underworld, even for a righteous patriarch like Jacob. So that's one example. Another one is King Hezekiah and Isaiah. I've been listening to too many British guys. I almost said Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah 38, verse 9. A writing, and again, Hezekiah was a righteous king. A writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, after he had been sick and had recovered from his sickness. This is what he says. I said in the middle of my days, I must depart. It's this language of departure. He thought he was going to die from his sickness. I am consigned to the gates of Sheol for the rest of my years. I said, I shall not see the Lord, the Lord in the land of the living. I shall look on man no more among the inhabitants of the world. So again, you can see what he's saying. He's saying, I'm going to leave the physical realm, earth, and depart and go to the underworld. He thought he was dying from his sickness. Probably man flu or something like that. Sheol is the common abode of the dead and departed, righteous and wicked. But, and here's what we see in the Old Testament, we get a little bit more light on this in the New Testament. The wicked and the righteous do not suffer the same fate even though they're in a similar place. There are hints in the Old Testament that the wicked will be in torment in Sheol, while the righteous, those faithful to God, those those believers in God will be at rest. Now, now listen to this, because this is important. And this is where we get kind of messed up because we're so used to New Testament uh, realities, which are a beautiful thing. But in the Old Testament mindset, and in a Jewish-Israelite mindset, there was no concept of going to heaven to be with God when you died. Look at the language we just looked at. To die was to go down to Sheol. That's just how, what happened to everyone. One pastor said this, he said... If you approached a Jew on the streets of Jerusalem in Jesus' day, so again, just getting at this kind of Jewish mindset, and asked, if you were to die tonight, why should God let you into his heaven? They would have probably said, God doesn't let anyone into his heaven. You mean, why should God let me into the good section of Hades, don't you? It's an important illustration. God, people didn't just go to heaven in the Old Testament. That was not what they were thinking about death. There are a couple of weird examples of people escaping death that are foreshadowings of Christ. So think of like Enoch and Elijah. If you know their stories, you can kind of guess why. But everyone else just goes to Sheol. Righteous kings, righteous patriarchs. To die was to go to the grave, go to Hades. But again, the wicked and the righteous did not dwell while they were both in Hades. They did not suffer the same fate there. The wicked were tormented. The righteous were at rest. The best example of this, the best explanation, comes on the lips of Jesus himself in Luke 16. If you want to turn there, we'll read this whole parable. And yeah, turn there if you can. I want you to see this with your own eyes. Luke 16, starting in verse 19. Here Jesus tells a parable um, 
that's going to explain a lot of these things and kind of give flesh to some of these realities, help us understand. So here's what he says, Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Very visual picture of the difference here. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side, or your translation may say Abraham's bosom. So here's kind of the first thing we see. and This was a common term for the Jews of, of the good place of Hades. Abraham's bosom, Abraham's side. In other words, I mean, think of in the Jewish mindset, in the Old Testament mindset, who is the, the uh, most righteous patriarch? Abraham. So the faithful Jew is going to wherever Abraham is. Be with Abraham. Goes to Abraham's side, carried by angels. It's kind of a gracious picture. Rich man was different. The rich man also died and was buried. Now again, notice the same language as the creed here. He died and was buried. And in Hades, or Sheol, being in torment, so the rich man died and buried, his soul goes to Hades as well. Being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Lazarus is the poor man. So they're in the same place. They can see each other, but they're having very different experiences. The rich man calls out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am in anguish in this flame. Look at this flame imagery. But look at Abraham's response. Abraham said, child, remember that in your lifetime, you in your lifetime received your good things. And Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. Look, they're a different experience. But now he is comforted here. So they're in the same place. Look at the language. He is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. Again, so here's this idea. Once you die, Hebrews, the book of Hebrews tells us it is appointed once, man to die and then judgment. There's, there's no second chances. You can't cross these chasms. So they're both in this place, Hades, on two sides of a great chasm that is not crossable. Lazarus with Abraham is comforted. The rich man is in anguish. He continues, look what he says. The rich man says, okay, so he's getting, I'm stuck here. He accepts that. He says, then I beg you, Father, to send him, send Lazarus to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. You can see what he's saying. Well then, okay, I'm, I'm too far gone. Send Lazarus, Lazarus and tell him to tell my family not to come this way. But Abraham said, listen to this response. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. In other words, they have the words of Scripture. Let them understand that. Rich man responds, and he said, No, Father Abraham. And, and how many times have you heard responses like this? 
No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, then they will repent. Right? How many times has someone just been unsatisfied with Scripture? No, if I got a miracle, then I would believe in Jesus. He says, look, if, if you just send Lazarus from the dead, they will repent. Abraham said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, if the word of God is not enough for them to believe, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, this parable has its own point in its context, but note this language in these last couple of lines. What does it mean in this parable to, to come from the dead, to rise from the dead? It means to come from Hades back to the physical realm. It's important when we're considering what Christ did. This phrase in Greek, from the dead, that you see all over the New Testament, we're talking about Christ's resurrection and things like that, is a plural. It's, it's not an uh, abstract philosophical concept. You're not rising from the state of being dead. You're rising from among those who are dead, the dead ones. You rise from the dead because Hades is down. We've seen that. Specifically in this text, again, someone returning to the earth from Abraham's side, a place where the righteous dead are comforted, which is exactly what the creed is claiming Jesus to have done. And we'll see again next week multiple New Testament texts that say the same thing. When we confess that Jesus died, was crucified, died, and buried, descended to the dead, we're confessing that he descended into Hades, into Abraham's side or bosom, and then ascended, rose from the realm of the dead three days later, and then eventually ascended even further to the right hand of the Father. We'll continue to explain that as we go. But, but do you see, both of them in Hades are experiencing different things, but they're both there. They're in shale. So in a sense, it's, there's two compartments, one for the righteous, one for the wicked. Now at this point, your head might be spinning a little bit. I know mine was years ago, and, and this week as I, I started to study this again, I, I love the imagery. It's like a labyrinth. Every time you think you've kind of got an answer to a question, it asks two more questions. You might be thinking this is all kind of weird. I don't know if I've ever heard this before. Again, don't take my word for it. Study the text. And it's about to get weirder because there's another compartment of Hades that is even deeper and darker than the place where the wicked dead are tormented. This is referred to in Scripture as the bottomless pit, as the abyss, even in one text that we'll see, Tartarus, the deepest part of Sheol. This is the place that Scripture teaches us where fallen angels have been imprisoned to await judgment on the last day. Let me show you some of these texts. Again, I, I know it sounds strange, but turns out the Bible is a supernatural book that describes supernatural realities. Isaiah 14 through 15. Now, this is the famous text that many believe is referring to Satan. He's boasting about how he's going to ascend above the heights of the clouds. We're going to look at this one a little bit more in depth next week. But notice the language. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But look at God's response. But you are brought down to Sheol, the far reaches of the pit. You're going to be brought down to the lowest reaches of Sheol, 
where spiritual beings are held. See this in the New Testament as well. 2 Peter 2.4 For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into, ESV says hell, the word there literally is Tartarus, it's again another word for the deepest part of the pit, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. So this deepest part is where these angels apparently are kept until the day of judgment. Jude teaches us the same thing. Jude verse 6, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, same thing. He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So these angels are in chains awaiting the judgment of the last day. Revelation tells us, I don't have this text in here, that, that hell itself, the, the lake of fire, was created for Satan and his angels. They're awaiting that judgment. It hasn't happened yet. And then there's this one. When, when Jesus approaches the demons in Luke chapter 8, notice what they say. Jesus then asked them, what is your name? And he said, legion, for many demons had entered him. And they, the demons, begged him. What are they begging him? And it's a, it's a continual verb. They're continuously begging Jesus not to command them to depart into the abyss. See, they know about this place, and they're begging Jesus, don't send us there, please. It's not time yet, some of the other demons tell Jesus. They don't want to go there. It's the deepest, darkest part of the under-the-earth realm, a place of darkness, gloom, Peter says, a place where fallen angels await judgment. Now, you might have noticed something strange in these descriptions. I intentionally never once used the word hell, because that word gets us all messed up. You see, what we think of as, as hell, when you picture hell in your mind, you know, this, this fiery place, the lake of fire. That has not happened yet. Hell, the lake of fire, is, is empty, according to the book of Revelation. There's, there's no one there yet. No one is cast into hell, into the lake of fire, until after the final resurrection and after the final judgment before God. The unrighteous dead await their fate in Hades alongside the fallen angels. They're not in hell yet. They have not been finally judged. Now, that might sound strange, but, but we see this all over Scripture. Look, look at Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. This is the, the judgment at the end of days, the great white throne judgment. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them what John sees, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, death in Hades gave up the dead, so the dead had been in death in Hades until this point, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. 
Okay, so no one's been thrown in the lake of fire yet. That happens next. Then, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Praise God. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So, so you see, no one's there yet. This happens after the final judgment. So to use the language of hell to describe Hades or, or the, the realm of the dead now is really confusing. That's why we say he descended to the dead. It's a more accurate way for our 21st century minds to understand this. Jesus did not, we'll talk about this more next week, Jesus did not descend into the place of fiery torment. Jesus did not descend into the lake of fire, the place for Satan and his demons and the wicked. Jesus descended, his soul descended to the place where all the righteous souls were, in Hades. He descended not not to suffer, but to conquer, to liberate the souls of the righteous dead and to proclaim his victory over the satanic domain, and over death in Hades itself. This is the hope of the righteous dead who were in Sheol before Christ's crucifixion. You see, because being in Sheol, you, you might think that sounds final, but the Old Testament has these glimmers of hope that though the righteous will go to Sheol, God will one day rescue them. We see this all over the place. They were awaiting the fulfillment of these promises of salvation, even in the realm of the dead. Listen to Psalm 107, 13 through 16. Or sorry, first Psalm 49, we read this earlier. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. I may go down to Sheol, but God will ransom me and will receive me. Psalm 107, 13 through 16, speaking of God's faithful people. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, for he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts into the bars of iron. Those, that language of doors of bronze and bars of iron is language of the gates of Sheol. God burst their bonds apart. They had that hope. Hosea 13, 14. God says this of his people. I shall, I will ransom them from the power of Sheol, power of death. I shall redeem them from death. Held on to that promise. Faithful Jews of old had awaited in their life the arrival of Messiah. And in Sheol, still, they awaited the arrival of their king. Who wouldn't leave them there, but would descend into Hades. Burst open its gates, break their bonds of iron, and lead them into the presence of God. And this is exactly what happened. Jesus Christ, the only Son of the Father, our Lord, that we confess, was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born the Virgin Mary, lived a perfect life on our behalf. 
he said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He was crucified, died, and was buried. When Christ was crucified, his death destroyed the power of death. I love the line, if you were at the Joymakers concert on Friday night, they sang a song, The Power of the Cross, and there's a line that says, death was crushed to death at the death of Christ. He destroyed the power that death had over humanity. He destroyed the power of Satan. Hebrews 2 says this, that through death, through his death, Christ he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. Paid close attention to Psalm 49 as we read it earlier. It says that before Christ, death was the shepherd that led people to Sheol. But now, the great shepherd has led his people out. He's led his people into the presence of God, sat down, and now he's building his church And the gates of Hades, the gates of Sheol, the gates of death will not prevail against it. Why? Because Satan no longer has the power of death. So Hebrews 2 says, Revelation chapter 1 says this, Indeed, Jesus Christ now has the keys of death and Hades. Says this, this is Christ's words, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. Amen. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. He didn't get those from a distance. He got them from Hades itself. Now, brothers and sisters, because of Jesus, those who who die in faith, no longer descend to Sheol, but ascend into heaven, into the presence of Christ and God the Father. The assembly of the firstborn to await the final resurrection. Revelation says, blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. Christian, this is your destiny upon death. The book of Hebrews gives us a glimpse into this new heavenly reality. Hebrews chapter 12 Verse 22, one of my favorite passages says this, But you have come, Christian, to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all. Here's the new part, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Christ sprinkled his own blood in the heavenly temple, and because of that, he opened the way into heaven for everyone who has faith in him. That's a new reality from the Old Testament. Remember what we talked about earlier, going to heaven, going into the throne room of God is not something they thought was possible. It wasn't until Christ came, until Christ died, until Christ was victorious over death and Hades. Spirits of the righteous no longer dwell in Sheol, but with Christ in heaven. The the place of the righteous dead is now with their Savior. 
pray that your soul would be comforted by this glorious truth. And if, and if you're feeling like there's still so many questions, that's good. That's why there's week two. Uh, and we're going to dig deep down in some other New Testament texts that talk about this. Some really weird ones. 1 Peter 3 and things like that. But let me leave you with this. Death came to humanity as a result of the fall. Sin of Adam and Eve. The second Adam, Jesus Christ, though tempted in every way, never sinned. He conquered sin and death on our behalf. He conquered death and Hades itself. He paid the price for our freedom with his own blood and then offered it up as a sacrifice to God. But only those who have faith in Christ will be with Christ in heaven when they die. You see, the scriptures teach clearly that that if your faith is not in Christ Jesus, you are still under the power of death. You are still under the power of the devil, and death is still your shepherd. Sin enslaves you. And unless you repent and put your faith in Christ when you die, your soul will descend to Hades and into torment. Like the rich man in the parable, you will realize your mistake, but it will be too late. So, so friend, I, I pray that you do not make that mistake. If you are here this morning, there's a reason for that. You are in the presence of those who believe in the living one, Jesus Christ. The one who holds the keys to death and Hades. If you will cast yourself upon his mercy, if you will bow the knee to him, if you will place your faith in him, he will receive you. He will pour out his mercy and grace upon you in your time of need. No one who comes to Christ in faith will ever be cast out. Hear the call of the gospel this morning. Turn to Christ and live. Look upon Christ and believe this morning. If that's, if that's you, we, we are here for you if you'd like to talk about this. Talk to me, talk to one of the other pastors, talk to someone. Let us pray with you. Let us, let us guide you in the Christian life and let us show you the way to heaven with Christ. The, the way to heaven lies, lies open to all who have faith in Christ. That way to heaven has a name. Jesus, he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes to the Father except through him. Let's pray.